Bible starting approximately nine years ago, and, and we are now in the middle of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 28, for the first six verses, we read this. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it is still in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty in the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. Join me in prayer. So, Father, tonight as we approach, maybe for the first time in our lives, reading Isaiah 28 or, or 29 or 30 or, or 31 or however far you allow us to go tonight, Lord, I ask that you open up our eyes and then any of those problems that may be weighing us down this last week, that you would uh, remove those things from us, that we would have a desire not only to come before you and worship you, but also to understand your word, that, that it would truly uh, change our lives tonight, that we wouldn't uh, be the same as we came into this room. And Lord, I thank you so much for all these kids that are on our campus, for the Vacation Bible Camp, Lord. I thank you so much for Miss Vanessa and her vision, Lord, the, the, the strength and the encouragement that you have not only given to her, but have blessed those, the, the many uh, people that are helping her to accomplish this task. Lord, I, I ask that you would prick the heart of those kids and they wouldn't just have fun and they, they just wouldn't, you know, get wet or they just wouldn't have or come for the food, but they would truly uh, come away knowing you as their personal Lord and Savior. And the same thing for those in this room, th those that may even have left their kids over there and, and have come here maybe for the first time, I ask that you would help them, those people in this room, not only to have a, a new and refreshed relationship with you, but also to have a changed life. And for those also that may have been coming for, for weeks and weeks and weeks or years and years and years, and maybe even out of habit, and maybe, maybe just because they, they have to be here or they have to do the, the security or they have to do the sound or they have to do whatever's behind the scenes, I ask that you would refresh them too tonight, that you would strengthen them and encourage them as well. I thank you so much. For what you're doing in our church. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. We're, we're in the middle of the book of Isaiah and we're in a time where uh, there has been a split in the nation of Israel and it started all the way back to the time when King Solomon had died. You see the nation of Israel as a whole as a united nation as all 12 tribes under a single monarch only lasted for 60 years, 20 years during the time of David and 40 years during the time of King Solomon. And then after King Solomon died, there was this split, the northern kingdom, 10 tribes. They leave underneath the reign of King Jeroboam and they form the nation of Israel in the north, uh, underneath the, the, the capital city of Samaria. And the no most important tribe in that 10 northern nations, those 10 northern tribes, was the tribe of Ephraim. And tonight we get to learn about Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel represented by the biggest of uh, the tribes. And you may ask me, you may ask yourself, well, I've never heard of a tribe or a son of uh, Isaac or Jacob that was Ephraim, right? 
Well, you have to remember all the way back that he had the favorite son. His name was Joseph. Remember, Joseph was given a coat of many colors. And being the favorite son, he got what was called a double portion. You will never see the tribe of Joseph in the Bible. Because it went to his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Ephraim, now the youngest of Joseph's sons, the one that was blessed greater by his father, Joseph's father, Jacob, who blessed the younger son, Ephraim, there in uh, Genesis chapter 48. And he blesses the younger son. And he's going to be now the most prominent of the northern tribes, Ephraim, from which every single one of the kings of the north will come from, starting with King uh, Jeroboam. But of course, in the south, you guys remember, the capital city was Jerusalem. And every single one of the kings that were in Jerusalem were descended from the tribe of Judah through David himself. So as we read through these next chapters, every single one is going to start with this word woe. And it's going to start with the northern kingdom of Israel, represented as Ephraim. And just like every single judgment in the book of Isaiah, we read about pride. It all comes down to pride. In fact, what does it say in the very first phrase of Isaiah chapter 28? Woe to the crown of pride. You see it around us all the time. You see it prominently displayed. I want to be proud of who I am. It all stems from who we are in our very being. It's the mantra of today. But unfortunately, what is judgment coming upon? It's coming upon Pride. And the contrast, of course, is between pride and humility. And what does humility represent? Humility represents my reliance upon God. Not my, upon my reliance upon myself, but upon my reliance upon God, the creator of all. The one who gives us every single thing that we have. The, the privilege of knowing that everything comes from God, as we're going to see tonight. In chapter 28, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. And the picture here is that all those, the elite of the society in the northern kingdom of Israel, those that have been relying upon their wealth, those that have been relying upon their heritage, those that have been relying upon what they have in and of themselves. God is saying, I'm going to bring it all down. All your beauty, I'm going to bring it down. All your pride, I'm going to bring it down. All, all your wealth, I'm going to bring it down. Because you are no longer trusting in uh, me. You see, in chapter 28, we're going to learn the woe to pride. And in chapter 29, we're going to learn the woe to religion. And in chapter 29, verse 15, we're going to learn about the woe the secret sins. And in chapter 30, we're going to learn about the woe to all the political leaders. And then in chapter 31, we're going to learn about the woe to all the military leaders, all the steps of society. No one is going to be immune to the destruction that is going to be coming. In verse 2, it says, Behold, the Lord has a mighty and a strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand, and the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot. What's going to happen to the pride of Ephraim? What's going to happen to the pride of this once great nation? You see, in 722 BC, the Assyrians will come in. And if you ever paid attention in your high school history class, which I know you know, many people don't. I remember falling asleep in class or just writing things down and then forgetting them after the death. 
But, but you remember, in, in, even in history class, the Assyrians were the great power at this time. And in 722 BC, they come and they sack Samaria. They literally come in and take away the northern ten tribes and they scatter them throughout the Assyrian Empire itself. And when those tribes come back, they come back no longer as pure-blooded Jews, but they come back as half-breeds. To the same exact place, by the way, Samaria. No longer as full-blooded Israelites, but as Samaritans. As people that are half-breeds, part Jewish and part something else. A people that had come back to the land were no longer accepted by the true Jews. No longer accepted by those that were 100% Jewish. It was the people like the woman at the well that Jesus met there in Samaria. When the, Jew, when the apostles, the 100% Jews, had left and gone to get something to eat, and Jesus was waiting by the well in the middle of the day, just like today when it's hot. And that woman comes carrying that big, heavy jar. Not in the cool of the morning like everybody else, but in the middle of the day when it's hottest because she was ashamed of who she was. And Jesus talks to that Samaritan. Or the parable, the one of the most famous parables that was ever told, right? The parable of the good Samaritan, right? Jesus represented not only the Jews, but he reached out to those that were the half-breed. And even more importantly, as we're going to find out later on in chapter 29, he's going to reach out to us as well, the Gentiles. Those that have zero Jewish blood in their body. The Gentiles that were equated even with dogs themselves. In verse 3, it says, The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley. Like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees, he eats it up while it is still in his hand. That beautiful piece of fruit that is nice and ripe, and you eat it right away. Can you see it? Literally, the juices flowing down the cheeks of the person that's eating it. Maybe you know a kid that would eat a piece of fruit, and what do they look like? Sticky, but it's sweet, it's delicious right away. It's destroyed. This is what Samaria was to the nation of Assyria. They wanted its wealth. In that day, the Lord of hosts for a crown of, will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty for the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. You see, there will always be a remnant of the people of God. And even the northern kingdom of Israel, by the way, that never had a single good king, uh, by the way, that worshipped the Baals and, and worshipped the Asherahs and worshipped every single other god. If you've ever read the book of Hosea, we're going through it on Wednesday mornings, by the way, uh, for the men at 6 a.m. And, and we have the privilege of learning about this northern kingdom of Israel and how in every single way they prostituted themselves out not only to the other nations, but also to other gods. And God calls it adultery. When they leave the, their one true love, God himself, and they worship other uh, gods. And so God still in his loving kindness, his faithfulness, when we are faithless, God remains faithful, just like he will to the northern kingdom of Israel. Yes, they will face judgment, as it says here. But a remnant will remain. A remnant will still uh, be there. Verse 7. But they also have erred through wine. And through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through the intoxicating drink. They err in vision they stumble in judgment for all the tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. They have this huge, massive rager. And what happens to all that alcohol that they have consumed? So much so that what is happening to the very tables that they're partying on? Vomit is building up. 
Now, all that alcohol poisoning that they're experiencing, all the addiction that they're facing. What happened last year in 2020 when people felt isolated? People that had thought they had conquered certain addictions in their life and they're all by themselves. What happened to many people? We saw it in this church, unfortunately. I see it in a lot of the men, unfortunately. Where, where they, they come and say, I, I, I once had control over this addiction in my life, and, and now that I, uh, you know, I am separated from fellowship, I, I, I can't go to church anymore, or they make excuses about not going to church or whatever it may be. And they understand that they can't conquer those addictions on their own any longer, and they give in. See, these are the addictions that we face, not only today, but even uh, back then, where intoxicating drink is overcoming the nation of Israel, so much so that there's no place clean. Why? Because of all the vomit, all the horrific addictions that are taking place. Verse 9, whom will he teach knowledge and whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breast, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Where have you heard that verse before, by the way? <laughs> you got to read it tonight in Isaiah chapter 28. This verse that is quoted for, you know, meaning that you're supposed to be studying the Bible, the precept ministries, all, all these, you know, Bible study forms, precept upon precept, line upon line. This is how we should be studying the scriptures. But unfortunately, what are they doing instead? They're distorting the scriptures. Those that are religious are the ones that are demonstrating how to become drunk. And just like in the book of Corinthians, when the Corinthians themselves, they would come to the table and they, those that were rich, those that were well off, they would get there first and they would consume all the food and all the drink. And what would they be? They'd be drunk by the time the poor came in. And Paul says, shame on you. Shame on you. Isaiah is saying the same exact thing to the nation of Israel. Verse 11, for with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. This is going to be fulfilled in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit comes and they will speak in tongues as a sign to the nation of Israel to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. You could be anywhere else tonight. You could be watching the shot put competition. You could be watching the running competition. You may be wa watching a lot of the various Olympics that are going on. Even for you that are online, thank you so much for being here. The privilege that we have is to come and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're learning something. Those, those things you can watch later. Those, those things you can watch anytime. You can just look it up, right? But the privilege that we have is to learn the word of God now. Because how important is the word of God to our uh, lives where we have the privilege of having fellowship uh, one with another. It is refreshing and it gives rest to the weary. But the word of the Lord was to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught to what has happened to all their intellectual knowledge about God. Oh yes, they'd memorize the scriptures. But does it avail anything? Does it, does it give us anything if it just stays in our head? Where does it have to go? Where do the scriptures have to go? You know the answer. 18 inches down to our hearts. Where it changes our life. Not, not just something that we memorize, but something that changes who we are personally. This is the power of the word of God. Verse 14, therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scornful man who rule this people who are in Jerusalem because you have said, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we are in agreement when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us 
For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Uh, you see, again, it's the mantra of the day where we make alliances with the occult. We make alliances with the New Age. We make alliances with those things that are damaging to our own lives, that promise a life that is good, but unfortunately, the end is always death. The same thing for the nation of Israel uh, doing uh, the same. You see, beyond choosing what is bad, they also despise what is good. Now, they don't just stop at choosing bad, but they despise what is good as well. All those things that God wants in our lives to be good and fruitful for us, just like it says there, in verse 14, 15, and also 16, as it says in 16, therefore thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion. Thank God for this. A stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. And again, have you heard that verse before? Probably, probably not from the book of Isaiah. You probably heard it from the New Testament, right? In fact, in 1 Peter, Peter quotes this exact same verse. For Peter, the guy that, you know, betrayed Jesus Christ. You know, the, the guy that, you know, uh, three times said, I don't know this guy at all. The, the guy who would put his foot in his mouth all the time. One time he'd be proclaiming the majesty of who Jesus was, and the, the very next line in the Bible, he'd be, you know, telling Jesus Christ how to do things, and, and Jesus having to say, get thee behind me, Satan, right? You see, in 1 Peter chapter 2, after Peter is older, he says this, coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, speaking to you, as living stones are being built up, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture going all the way back to Isaiah chapter 28, where we get to read it tonight. Behold, I lay in Zion, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him Will, by, will be by no means put to shame. Isn't that amazing? That going all the way back to the time when Israel is addicted, when they're in sin, where they're literally partying on vomit on the tables, where there's nowhere clean, and God promising that one day soon there would be a chief cornerstone, something that you could stand on that is firm. No longer slick with slime from your own stomach. Where, where you could have a firm foundation to stand on. And then Peter himself quoting this and saying that you, those of you that know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, can be a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. That we have the privilege of knowing God personally in chapter 17 or chapter 28 verse 17 it says this in isaiah also i will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet the hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hiding place you see there is only one standard and it's not me it's not pastor mike ostheimer it's not anyone in this room or, or anyone in our church or, or anyone alive today. The standard is always the same throughout history. It's always God. God is the standard of righteousness. You see, if I could judge myself by any other person, oh, I might look good next to that person, but, but I might fail next to this other person. But you see, with God, the standard is always the same. The measuring line, as it says here, is always the same. It's the standard of righteousness. And all of us have failed. 
All of us have come short of the glory of God. All of us have not come up to the standard. We need someone who is righteous. And just like what we learned in Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9, God incarnate is coming to this earth. And he's going to provide a way of salvation where we too can meet the standard, where I can give him my sin and he gives me my righteousness. Guess what? That's really unfair. That's really unfair. But who in this room would ever complain about that kind of unfairness? I wouldn't. But God himself coming to this earth provides the measuring line and he meets the standard of righteousness and justice. In contrast to the covenant that they have, verse 18, your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Shoal will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. As often as it goes out, it will take you. From morning by morning, it will pass over. And by day and by night, it will be a terror just to understand the reports. When all you do is watch the reports on the news, when all you do is watch bad news all the time, what then becomes your standard in life? What then happens to your outlook on life? What then happens to your attitude toward life? You become inoculated to what's going on around you. You, you become literally vaccinated to things around you. Not, not through a shot in your arm, but through a shot through your eyes. Where all those negative things infiltrate your way of thinking itself. And this is the way with the nation of Israel itself. Death was the standard of the day. All they thought about, just drink, uh, eat, drink, and be merry. Why? Because tomorrow we're going to die. The Assyrians are at our doorstep. Death is coming. Verse 21, or 20 and 21. For the bed is too short to stretch out on, and the covering so narrow that no one can wrap himself in it. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. A miracle is about ready to be performed. This first illustration kind of wraps it up literally, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek, literally wraps this up perfectly. Have you ever been on a bed that was too short? Or had a blanket that didn't cover you all the way? Or, or maybe had a spouse that, that took over uh, the bed? I remember, you know, having to share a bed with two other people for years and years and years. Not just my wife, but my youngest son as well. He, he, he would always come into our room I can measure the time Aaron, my youngest son, at 10, 10 p.m. would always come into our room and, and you know, he'd, she'd come to, he'd come to the side of the bed and say, Daddy, can I sleep with you? You know, and of course, you know, he wouldn't sleep on one side or the other. Where would he sleep? Right in the middle between Emily and myself. And in the middle of the night, I don't know how he did it, but somehow he always turned sideways. And his feet were kicking me in the middle of the night. Emily got the good side of the head. I, I got the kicking side, you know. But, but you understand what happens when a, a bed becomes too crowded. Exactly the same thing here. The illustration that is so poignant in the scriptures as we're reading it in chapter 28, verse 20. That it's just like sleeping on a bed that's too small. Or having a blanket that is too short. The uncomfortableness of sleep itself. This is what's going to be happening. And the two representatives that are, you know, given here, Mount Perizim and, and Valley of Gibeon, we probably have no idea what those are unless you, you know, you're, you went to seminary or something like that or, or studied ahead, which hopefully you guys, you guys did. And it's one of those, those, you know, privileges that growing up in Israel you might have. But, you know, for us living in Kern County, we have no idea where Mount Perizim is or, or these, you know, various places that we're going to be, be seeing uh, later on. It would just be like an Israelite coming to Kern County 
and you're telling them, well, I, I remember, you know, just go up there to Hatchaby or Mavi or Mojave or, or Arvin or, or Green Acres or Oildale or, or one of the many places that we know personally that we've been to, right? And it's the same thing for an Israelite as they're describing it. The person that lives in the area would know these things. In fact, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 5, verse 20, we learn about Perazim. So David went to Baal, Perazim, and, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me, like a breaking of the water, exactly the same illustration that we're seeing in these verses. The overflowing of water, the breaking through as Perazim represents. No longer as David did when he came and broke through and named the place Perazim, but now the Assyrians are going to break through and destroy Israel. Or, or the next reference, the Valley of Gibeon, in Joshua chapter 10, verses 10 through 11. So the Lord routed them before Israel, killed them with a great slaughter at Gibeon. This is Joshua overcoming the tribes or the nations within the promised land. He chased them along the road that goes to Beth Horon and struck them down as far as Azekah and Makeda. And it happened as they fled before Israel and were on the descent of Beth Horon that the Lord cast down large hailstones from heaven on them as far as Azekah and they died. There were more who died from the hailstorms than the children of Israel killed uh, with uh, the sword. All these awesome acts, these miraculous events that took place in the history of Israel, and these are being remembered by Isaiah to the people of Israel at this time. Remember those great acts that God did in your history. Those unusual miracles. Those one-time events where God reached out and saved you. And he can do it again if you just repent of your sins and turn back to God. Unfortunately, in verse 22, they do not. Now, therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. Give ear, hear my voice, listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep churning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat and rows and the barley in the pointed place and the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment, his God teaches him for the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod and you may be you know asking yourself i have no idea what this is talking about just look in your spice rack just look in your cupboard hopefully you have you know a Maybe it's really, really old, far the way in the back, covered in sticky stuff, you know. The cumin, right? The thing you only pull out when you're making, you know, maybe Mexican food or something like that or, or some sort of, you know, uh, uh, exotic thing. But, but this was a part of the spices of Israel. That This was one of those ingredients that was supposed to be treated not in a rough way, but in a, a ginger way, in, in a way where you didn't want to have to break the seeds too much, just enough to bring out the flavor, just enough to bring out the essence of the spice. And this is what is happening within the nation of Israel. You see, God himself is bringing discipline to the people of Israel. And not just with something that is light, light and dainty, or like a stick or, or some sort of a, a, you know, a bundle of sticks that you would use to break apart these cumin. But he's coming with a threshing sledge. Something that's going to bring about devastating destruction upon the nation of Israel. As it says in verse 28 and 29, bread flour must be ground Therefore, he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. 
who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Does God always know the perfect way to bring about change in our lives? Discipline in our lives. Correction in our lives. With those pruning hooks or, or those you know uh, clippers that comes along, just as the New Testament talks about a vineyard or a vine where the pruning takes place in our lives, where the refining takes place in our lives. And what is the purpose of pruning or refining or, as in this case, the beating of the cumin or the flower? What is it supposed to do? It's to make it more valuable. Because what happens when you break open that cumin? Ah, oh, the smell. What happens when you beat the wheat and turn it into flour? It becomes more valuable. What happens when you refine the gold and the silver and take away all the impurities? It becomes more valuable. Well, what happens when a life is refined and changed and pruned? you become more valuable as well. And this is truly the love of God. Isaiah chapter 29, the second of the woes. Woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. At year to year, let festivals or, fe or feasts come around. You see, this term Ariel is is used only in this chapter. It's the, the privilege that we have multiple times in the first nine chapters, we're going to see this word used over and over again. It literally means Lion of God. And if you remember uh, Jerusalem itself, it was not only the capital city of Judah, but it was the capital of the kingdom from which the Messiah would come to. The Lion from the tribe of Judah. Jerusalem, that city of peace, is now renamed the Lion of God. The one from whom the Lion would come. The one who would bring not only salvation, but judgment as well uh, to the world or to the word. The repetition of the term Ariel indicates that the Lord's sorrow over the sorry state of the nation now no longer focusing on Israel, but the southern kingdom of Judah to which his city had fallen. You see, chapter 28 was exclusively for the nation of Israel, but now 29, it's going to the southern kingdom of Judah. That, that nation that was made up of Judah and Benjamin, whose capital was Jerusalem, from which every single one of the kings would descend from David, all the way to Jesus Christ himself. Not in 722 when the Assyrians would come and take away Israel, but in 586, a different nation would come, the Babylonians. And they would come in and they would literally take away in three segments the population of Jerusalem. First in the time of Daniel, second in the time of Ezekiel, and third in the time of Jeremiah which we'll read about later when we get to those books. Verse 2, Yet I will distress Ariel, Lion of God. There shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall to be to me as Ariel. Uh, I will encamp against you all around. I will lay siege against you with a mound, and I will raise siege works against you. You shall be brought down. You shall speak out to the ground. Your speech will be low out of the dust. And your voice will be like a medium's out of the ground. And your speech shall whisper out of uh, the dust. Literally speaking from the ground itself. You will beaten, be beaten down so low. It will feel like you've been talking for hours and hours and hours. And your, your mouth is filled with dust. Or maybe just living in Bakersfield. Working outside in the heat. What happens to the, your mouth as you... You, uh, whether you run or whether you jog or whether you walk, even in this heat, what happens to your saliva? What happens to your mouth? It dries up, just like I am uh, now, by the way. I need a drink. <laughs> Verse 5, Moreover, the multitude of your foes shall be like fine dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones like chaff. 
that passes away, yes, it shall be in an instant suddenly. You will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and an earthquake and a great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame, a devouring fire, the multitude of all the nations who fight against Ariel, even all who fight against her and her fortress and distress her shall be as a dream of a night vision. We learned about this great earthquake that took place all the way back in Isaiah chapter 1. Remember? Isaiah chapter 6, we learn about King Uzziah two years after the great earthquake. Uh, this time where God is bringing judgment, not just upon a king, but upon a nation as well that has pride in their hearts. God will bring about a destruction. Verse 8, and it shall, be, it shall even be as when a hungry man dreams dreams. And look, he eats, but he awakes and his soul is still empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and look, he drinks, but he awakes, and indeed he is faint, and his soul still craves. So the multitude of all the nations shall be who fight against Mount Zion. Have you ever had a dream about food? Maybe you went to bed hungry or something like that, and you dreamed about food. You know, I, I, I've, you know, dreamed about rocks when I was young. I, I had nightmares about these smooth rocks that were sharp. You know, I don't know why. But I remember these dreams. And when you wake up, you wake up in this, you know, sweat. And maybe you cry out. Or, or there's this dream where, you know, something is eating you rather than you eating it. Something that should be benign and gentle, but now is hurting you, or, or maybe something that you're dreaming where you, you're, you're, you want it so bad that you dream about it all the time. This is what it is like to have a lack of the Word of God. You see, as we're going to find out as we read in the following verses here, the greatest judgment that can come upon a nation isn't famine. It isn't destruction from an outside nation. It's a lack of the word of God. It's a silence from God himself. And the greatest judgment isn't going to be the Assyrian Empire. It's not going to be the Babylonian Empire. It's not even going to be the Greeks or the Romans later on. It's going to be literally a time of silence from God himself. Those 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament where God doesn't even speak a single word to the nation of Israel. Maybe you've experienced that in your own life. You see, when sin comes into a person's life, pride comes into a person's life, addiction comes into a person's life, where, where you treasure something else other than God himself, it hinders our relationship with God. What does sin do to even a Christian's life? It hinders our walk with God. It puts a, a wall or a roof between us and God until we ask God to take those things out of our lives. And back to 9 and 10, it says this, pause and wonder, blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes namely the prophets, and he has covered your heads, namely the seers. What has happened to those that are supposed to be speaking the truth of God? What has happened to them? Rather than seeing, they're being made blind. Rather than speaking the truth, they're speaking lies. Rather than being awake and watchmen, what has happened to them? They've fallen asleep. Verse 11, the whole vision has become to you like the words of the book of that is sealed, which men delivered to one who is literate, saying, read this, please. And he says, I cannot, for it is sealed. Then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, please, or read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. Uh, therefore, the Lord says, inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but he removed their hearts far from me and their Fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. Therefore, behold, I will again do a marvelous work among this people, a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the understanding of their prudent 
shall be hidden. What's God going to do to the wisest of the people? Those that should be teaching the people, by the way. Those that should be instructing the people. What's going to happen to them? They're going to become illiterate. They're going to become blind. The words of God are going to become sealed for a certain period of time. The third of the woes, verse 15. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord. And their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us and who knows us? Surely you have things turned around. Shall a potter be esteemed as the clay? Or shall the thing made say to him who made it, he sh shall, or he did not make me? Or shall the thing formed say to him who it formed, he has no understanding? Again, this is the mantra of our day. We have no creator. We just evolved, right? Everything just evolved. There was no great creator who created everything. And when we eliminate God from the equation, what now happens to our perspective on the universe as a whole? I can do whatever I want. There's no one keeping me accountable. I don't have to answer to anyone. Everything I do, I did for myself and for those around me that I love. Everything I do is because of who I am, what I want. It's the pride of today you see in amos chapter 8 verses 11 and 12 it says this behold the days are coming says the lord god that i will send a famine on the land not a famine for bread nor a thirst for water but of hearing the words of god they shall wander from sea to sea from north to the east, they shall run to and fro, seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. This famine that no longer is for, you know, basic sustenance like food and water, but literally a desire for the word of God, but there's nowhere to find it. It's happening now, people. When things that are the word of God are being eliminated from our society. Where, where the, the things that we should be esteeming the most, the spiritual things from who God is, that we should be literally teaching those around us, bringing them into an understanding of the word of God are being slowly stripped away from our society. And then what happens when it's all gone? People are going to look for it, but they're not going to be able to find it. And it's the same thing with Israel and Judah at this time. In fact, during the time right after Malachi, all the way up to the book of Matthew, you see this time of silence, 400 years, literally, where there is no word from God until the word of God becomes flesh. Until Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes to this earth, where John the Baptist prepares the way of the Messiah as is proclaimed, and of course you can read about that in Matthew, Mark, uh, Luke, and John. Verse 17, is it not yet a li very little while? Till Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be esteemed as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of the book, and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Where have you heard these phrases before? The very first sermon that Jesus preaches there on the Mount of Beatitudes, there at the Sea of Galilee, the very first part of the book of Matthew from chapter 5 all the way to chapter 12 where Jesus preaches this huge massive sermon all to these people that are sitting just wanting to hear the word of God because they haven't heard it. Because the people are blind, because the people are deaf, because they haven't heard the word of God for so long and they're so hungry. And the very first words out of Jesus' mouth as he speaks in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for God. All these phrases that we learn about here, who is going to bring them about? The Holy One of Israel. The Messiah. The one who's going to fulfill every single promise. You see those kids right over there, they're learning about the promises of God. Monday, they learned about Noah. Tuesday, they learned about Abraham. Today, they learned about Jesus Christ. And every single one of the promises that God makes, He always fulfills. He always fulfills, including the promises. And by the way, you're learning more in depth, of course. You're reading Isaiah chapter 29. You're reading Isaiah chapter 28, those parts of your Bible that you probably never even read before or never even heard a sermon on before. We get the privilege of learning these archaic prophecies and seeing that God will bring them about. Thank God that he always does. How is he going to bring them about? The very last phrase of verse 19. In the Holy One of Israel, the promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who fulfills every single promise of God, every single prophecy, Jesus Christ himself. And by the way, we're going to get to celebrate that fact tonight. Verse 20 and 21, for the terrible one is brought to nothing. The scornful one is consumed, and all who watch for iniquity, they're cut off. Who make a man an offender by a word, and lay a snare for him, or reproves in the gate, and turn aside the just by empty words? Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed nor shall his face now grow pale. But when he sees his children, the work of his hands in his midst, uh, they will hallow his name, hallowed the Holy One of Jacob, and fear the God of Israel. These also who erred in spirit will come to understanding, and those who complained will learn doctrine. Who did Jesus Christ come to first? He came to the nation of Israel. When the nation of Israel was in bondage, when the nation of Israel was enslaved by the Roman Empire, when the nation of Israel was no longer their own sovereign kingdom, when the nation of Israel at this time has no king whatsoever, in fact, not since the time of, you know, the very last king of Israel at the time of exile during the time of Jeremiah, where, where, you know, the king that is on the throne at that time, the very last king of the line of David, not until some 470 years later when Jesus Christ now comes to this earth. And what does he proclaim? Not a king that comes riding on a white horse with a sword in his hand to deliver the nation of Israel from the Roman Empire. But what has he come to do? You know this story. He comes to die on a cross. He comes humbly riding a donkey. He comes to this earth to show what it means to submit and to be humble. Not, not to come with pride in his heart, saying, this is what I will do for you. But instead, humbly submitting to the will of God and saying, not my will, but thy will be done. See, this is the privilege that we have of taking communion. And around this room, there are, there are stations. And I invite you just to come on up and, and just grab uh, one of these. We're going to be reading from the book of, of Matthew. And just hold the cup. We're going to be taking it corporately uh, together. And the privilege that we have is we, we read uh, Matthew chapter 26. And this is what Jesus does in that upper room. This is what Jesus does in that upper room. Zachary, can I have one too, please? Thank you. Uh, this is what Jesus does the very last time he comes to his disciples. He holds a cup in his hand. There amongst those that he knows will not be there when he is crucified. In fact, only one of those people around that room will be at the foot of the cross. It's just going to be John and some of the women, Mary, Mary, and Mary. 
And there on the cross, what are those people that are gambling for his clothes at the foot of the cross? Those people that, that with pride in their heart think that they have conquered God himself, the Messiah, the supposed Antichrist that has come uh, to this earth. The one that had proclaimed as they mounted literally above his head, King of kings and Lord of lords. The one who they thought that they had killed. What does Jesus say in the upper room? And we read this story in Matthew chapter 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed it. And he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body. And yes, this is just a wafer. This is just, you know, a hard thing that you have to pull the little top off of, you know, because of sanitary reasons. But, but to understand that what does this represent? It's the body of Jesus Christ. We, we get to have the privilege today of partaking together corporately in a communion service, a representation of what it means to look forward to that time where we get to have a meal with Jesus Christ himself. And so Jesus blessed this. He took it and he said, take, eat. This is my body. And then in verse 27, it says, and then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And just like it says in the book of Hosea, just like we're going to be learning about in the book of Isaiah, where there's this covenant that God makes with his people. This uh, literally a, a marriage between God and us. Not, not a marriage that is between uh, two people, but a marriage that God cuts in his own blood, the blood of his son there on the cross. And he makes this covenant with us. And the word right before the word covenant is new. Not based upon the blood of a lamb. Not, not based upon, you know, something that I have to do. Or, or something that, you know, I need to, you know, change in my life. But the covenant is in the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, it's not what I've done, but what Jesus Christ has done for me. Not, not what we have done, but what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so Jesus says, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of uh, sins. And so tonight, we get to partake of this together. And the most amazing thing in verse 29, it says, But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And that you includes you. That, that you doesn't just include those apostles around that table, but that includes us as well. You see, every time we have the privilege of taking communion, maybe on the first Sunday of the month or the first Wednesday of the month or, or maybe even in your own house where you take communion, you with God. But every single time we take communion, it's always to be a reminder that Jesus Christ is going to fulfill his promise. That he's going to come back for us. That we're going to also be able to celebrate having a feast with him, not just from a, you know, a, a sanitized cup, but a feast in heaven, what is called in the book of Revelation, the marriage feast of the lamb, where a spread that'll go beyond anything that you've ever dreamed of, by the way, 
as we read about in Isaiah. It will actually come true. Something that is better and more satisfying than anything that we can have here on this earth. I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And then in verse 30, and I always love this verse, because it doesn't just end in that upper room. They go to the Mount of Olives, and what do they do on the way to the Mount of Olives? Verse 30 says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And so, as our tradition is, on Wednesday nights, on the first Wednesday of the month, we too get to sing a hymn. I just want to read the first part of the verse. It's so amazing. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Where rivers of pleasure I see. Join with me, stand as we sing this hymn. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. A wonderful Savior to me. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Where rivers of pleasure I see. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand and covers me there with his hand. Do you know the chorus? Do you know the tune? Guess what? You get to repeat it three more times. Here we go. Verse 2. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. He taketh my burden away. He holdeth me up and I shall not be moved. He giveth me strength as my day. He hideth my soul. In the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand. And covers me there with his hand. With numberless blessings each moment he crowns. And filled with his fullness divine. I sing in my rapture, oh, glory to God for such a redeemer as mine. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life. In the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand and covers me there with his hand. When clothed in his brightness, transported I rise to meet him in clouds up the sky. His perfect salvation, his Wonderful love, I'll shout with a million's own high. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love and covers me there with his hand. And covers me there with his hand. And so, Father, tonight, as we remember that taste in our mouth, maybe that the taste of the bread or, or the taste of the juice, that as we take away from tonight the remembrance that every single time that we have communion, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that not only have you given us assurance of our salvation, 
that you've given us a reminder of our salvation as well. Every single time we partake in communion, to look forward to the fact, and it truly is a promise, it is a fact, a hope that will come about, that we will one day have fellowship with you, communion with you, the marriage feast of the Lamb there in heaven itself. And so tonight, maybe we may we be we ourselves wrestling with an addiction or, or ourselves have pride in our lives. Help us to examine ourselves. Help us to be grateful for the times of pruning. Help us to be grateful for the times of refining. Help us to be grateful for the times of discipline in our lives where you are making us more and more like you. You're making us more and more in your image. You're sanctifying us. You're growing us. You're helping us to become more and more mature in the faith. So Lord, I, I thank you tonight for these two chapters. I, I thank you tonight for the, chap the book of Isaiah. I thank you tonight for these, my friends, my family represented in this room and those that are watching online. I ask you to bless them mightily tonight, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless.